Father, with our eyes overseas and with our eyes on the vote this next week, we're aware that you are at work in broad ways across our state and our country and across the world. But our prayer right now, Lord, is for us. Because, Lord, we, we know that the great miracle you have done is in redeeming us, taking us who were hard and softening us, taking us who were blind and giving us sight, taking us who were enemies and making us friends, that we could even sing a song that despite our past, the God of the universe calls us friend. These are great miracles, and in light of the fact that we can look back on them, we pray for another one today. We pray that no matter how scaly or hard or distracted we are, your spirit would be at work to wake us up, open our eyes once again. So that the words we read, though written long ago, would be spoken actively by your spirit to our hearts. Because we need this, Lord. We don't want to become like the world around us. We don't want the fire in our hearts to simply fade away. We want to be zealous for your purpose, for your kingdom. We know that that's the only spot that there's life. There's nowhere else for us to go but to you. And so I pray that we now gathered before you would have open ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how you guys have felt about the book of Galatians lately, but let me give you a reminder of where we've been because we've kind of bounced around. Normally, we will take one passage, and then the next week, we'd read the one right after that, and then we'd read the one right after that. And we're kind of doing that as we go through Galatians, but we have sort of meandered a little bit here over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we were in Galatians 3 and 4. We took a lot of verses together. We tackled all those metaphors together, and we tried to ask the question of essentially what this message was that Paul was trying to drive home to the Galatians over and over and over. Last week, with the kids in with us, we decided that we wanted to take a few verses, and so we dove into the middle of chapter 4, and we looked at 4, 5, and 6 together. Two weeks ago, I told you as well that we were going to skip over a little portion that's what you just heard read right now. So in the middle of doing all of three, well, a good chunk of three, and almost all of four, we did skip verses 8 through 20, and that's what Olivia read for us right now. The reason that I want to deal with this as a unit is that I think it's really instructive for us, not just because of the fact that we're entering into 2024, an election year, and we all know how well 2020 went, so because, you know, we have absolute immunity to being vicious with each other or divisive or, you know, a little bit contentious more than we have to. And if you're the kind of person who kind of misses 2020, because you're always just itching for a good fight, you just can't wait to go on and you hope somebody said something dumb on Facebook so that you can just engage and, and get them. Oh, well, hey, good news. You've got another year for all those opportunities. But here's the problem. That's not the only thing that's driven Paul in the book of Galatians. 
In fact, you might have liked Galatians 1, 6 to 7, where Paul says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him. And you may have loved that first sermon when we opened up Galatians together. And I was like, Paul's zealous. Paul's yelling at him. And you're like, yeah, go get him, Paul. Those people are stupid. I can't wait to join you on the battlefield to tell other people they're stupid. Okay, if that's you, I want to tell you that that's not all that's actually driving Paul. Everything we've heard in these first four chapters of zeal, of energy, of contention has been true. I don't think we've added tone to Paul that isn't coming through just kind of obviously through the words. It's kind of hard to read one, six and seven and say, I just astonished. I, I don't think that's the tone. I do think the tone has been one of exasperation, of a little frustration with these people. That said, Listen to verse, chapter 4, verse 11. Paul's saying the same thing, but with a different tone. He says, I am afraid that I've labored over you in vain. Then Olivia and I didn't talk about how she was going to read that, right? What tone to use. But I would suggest to you that what we read in 4, 8 through 20 particularly the latter half of that, which is what I want to look at first. Since we're just dancing all around Galatians, we're going to dance all around 4, 8 through 20 a little bit. And in fact, there are kind of two sermons within a sermon, not in some like Tardis way or something along those lines, but I'm, I'm going to kind of make two three-point emphases. And I, I want you to consider them both as balancing forces, as two guardrails uh, that, that kind of protect us as we have conversations with people who may not agree with us. Conversations that may guard us as we move into 2024. Conversations as we make our way into a time where some people may feel that one candidate represents their values, though not their character, and that's worth endorsing. And others that may have a different perspective. We, we struggled through that conversation before. In fact, to jump away from the message for a minute, we are going to pitch an idea to you guys. We're not quite sure how strongly to emphasize this idea, but there have been a series of debates done among believers who generally share our values, who may not say everything exactly the way that we say it, but that's kind of the point of the debates. They've had a number of them over a lot of divisive conversations and topics that have dominated our country for a while, uh, the world even. So questions on wokeism and gun control and what the nature of a pro-life ministry ought to be, a whole host of things. They, we're wondering if those might be instructive to us and whether we want to build some of our 2024 calendar, maybe over the summer, maybe over late spring, maybe right as soon as we get into 2024 so we can inoculate ourselves against some of the hostility that's just going to be popular in our country, I think, for a while. We're going to try and figure out how to lead us through that, and we may use that because I recognize that, getting back to the message, in hearing Galatians, there may be some of you who are all up for the battle. You're just ready to be disagreed with because you know you're going to own that person who's just not as smart as you are or whatever kind of language you like to use. There may be others of you who are like, oh, all of that scares me. In fact, I don't think Christians should ever disagree I think we should always just kind of accent the Jesus sort of thing. You know, not Jesus for the Pharisees, because we don't always like the way Jesus spoke to them. 
But you know, the Jesus and the way that he talked to sinners and the way he was kind and gentle to children and those kinds of things, the way he embraced those that were outcasts. I like that Jesus. And I, I like some things that you're going to preach about Paul here today, that whole like, you know, boy, I was weak and you were weak and we were compassionate one to the other. And you, you, you like that. I, there's both of us to take those two kinds of approaches. Some of you with Paul want to be astonished. And some of you with Paul want to be afraid. And if you've been on this side and you've loved the, the messages for a while, stay tuned for the second half of this sermon because we're going to talk about tough things Paul has to say. But you might also want to pay attention to the first half of the sermon because I think you're going to hear a different heart from Paul, more the I'm afraid heart, not the astonished heart, but the, the, the guy who actually was with these people knew them and carried their concerns and his burden for them whenever he left. So that when he's writing, he's got this energy, this zeal for them. But I think we're going to hear a little bit first what drove that. Why is it that he wasn't apathetic to their departure? But why was he so concerned about it? Let me suggest to you a couple of reasons first, and then we'll talk about the tough stuff that he says again. All right? First thing that I think we see and it came in the second part of this, starting in verse 12, is that Paul wants to recall his shared history with the Galatians. Did, did you hear some of that in the, the way? If you didn't, let's, let's read it again. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. You, you, you hear what's going on in 13 and 14? Paul came not as the hero, not as the celebrity. Paul came as one who could have been a scorned and disguised, uh, despised burden. Something about him and apparently something about his eyes, right? We, we keep reading. So you didn't, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That is a weird thing to say, just kind of abstractly. I don't think that I've ever thanked someone. And as a second aside, thank you guys. You guys were so kind to us as elders last week. Christine and I just went back home and we just opened card after card and things keep falling out of the cards. And it wasn't like glitter, which is like the worst thing to put in a card, by the way. So if you're that person, you never have to waste a lick of glitter on me. No, like cards are falling out of cards. And Christine and I are thinking about places we're going to eat and... The kids are thinking, well, maybe mom and dad will want to take us out to eat. But nowhere in my expressions of gratitude for all of that did I ever once think to say to any of you, you would have gouged your eyeballs out for me and for the other fellow elder. That does not seem a normal thing to say when you're telling someone that you really appreciate your relationship with them. Well, so what's going on? We don't know. There's a lot of people guessing a lot of stuff. Paul talks about weakness that he feels. Uh, skip ahead, Isaac, to the 1 Corinthians 2.1. When I came to you, brothers, so this is not Paul to the Galatians. This is Paul to those in Corinth. So later on in his time, something's still bugging Paul. 
Something's not quite right with him. He's not the, the Roman orator of the day, gathering people because of his strength. I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. What's going on? Paul, back to saying this again to the Galatians. I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and handed them over to me. That was not possible, but that was the way you felt about me. Something was wrong with my eyes, apparently. So wrong was it with my eyes that when I speak to you, I wasn't speaking to you as kind of a skilled public speaker. I don't, I don't know if, if, if this is Paul trying to explain the scrolls and tell people where Jesus is. And he's I'm sorry, guys, I just can't see real well. They're like, no, Paul, it's okay, man. Talk to us. It's all right. we, we just want to hear you. I mean, man, I'd give you my ability to see if I could. That's the nature of their relationship. What's Paul doing here in Galatians? He is expressing to them that shared history that they have together. If you, if you want to meet people as the holidays come up and you want to re-enter into your family and have a capacity to speak in a way that does something, this isn't a bad tip to learn from Paul. If you want to reach out into your neighborhood, if you want to be a voice for truth and grace at work, it helps to know the people you're with. Helps to care about them at all. And not as a hero from the distance, listen to me, my people. No, this is Paul down on the ground, speaking with them, sharing with them his weakness. What was the, what was the result of this? We've already heard something very similar to that. Paul's talking about, potentially, his weak eyes. And yet somehow in the sharing of weakness among them, what was the result? Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you, did you hear that in the middle of his rebuke that we looked at before? How did you guys come to Jesus? How did he say it? It was your working eyes that had been blind to Jesus. And until I brought my weak eyes to you, you didn't see him. What a, what a paradigm, what a freeing paradigm for ministry this delivers to every single one of us. Because you know what happens? We come here and we see everybody else's strength, or at least the strength that somehow gets presented to us, right? And we're like, everybody else is so popular, or everybody else is so put together, or everybody else's family is just doing so well, or what, 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 whatever, right? We have this way of kind of taking whatever either somebody's presenting or we're constructing. I don't know which happens more powerfully sometimes, whether we fake it or whether we just don't want to see weakness in people, so we're willing to embrace the shellacked veneer of things. It, it, it's kind of, we, we're both culpable for it, you know? But we take that and we think that all the strengths of other people, when they marry up to the weakness of my life, it disqualifies me from having anything to say. Is that what happened with Paul? 
Their eyes worked. His didn't. And what did he do? He presented his weak eyes before them so that their strong eyes might see something that they had never seen before. This paradigm of ministry is a beautiful moment for us when we think about bringing our weakness to others. What if what we did was just to tell other people, this is what's going on in my world. This is the best way I can possibly. I am struggling in my marriage. I am having a hard time knowing how to raise my kids. I am feeling this battle with sin that's going on. I'm feeling this tendency towards these old addictive ways that I, I live, these ways that I've comforted myself in the past. I, I feel it. I mean, can you imagine having a conversation like that with your neighbor? Oh my gosh, no. No, I'd never do something like that. Why not? Paul sort of did. He took what was weak about him, used it then as the context to be able to say, despite this, do you see Jesus? What if we were, in fact, not disqualified from being similar method or similar ministers, but actually qualified by our weakness in order to bring a message that was strong? Because what Paul says again is at the end, in fear and much trembling, in my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Somebody finish the verse for me. How does that end? You know this. You've heard it before. So that your confidence would not be in my strength, but in his. That's the Darren version of how that ends. In other words, what Paul's saying isn't, this is just the tactic I use because these are the cards that I've got. I was bluffing my way through. No, what he's saying is actually me being weak is designed by God so that I can proclaim a strong message of a strong God who also wants to meet fellow weak and broken people. See how Paul starts? He starts by just recalling their shared history together and saying, this is where we were at, guys. Tactic one, if you want to embrace it that way, is to remember that he's friends with the people he disagrees with. He cares about them because they have this shared history that he can recall together. Second thing that he does, though, is to not only talk about their, their shared history, he remembers their shared enemy. He meets them then in verse 16 and says, Have I then, having... Where's this blessedness from the past? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? His, his answer to that, this kind of gets skipped over, but it's implied. No, 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 no. The enemy's different. It's, it's not me. He, let's talk about the enemy. They, the enemy, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. This, this make much of is not language we hear a whole lot. You know, it, it's actually a translation of the word zealous. You want to have a really bad translation of this text? Here it is. This is my really, really bad translation of it. They zeal you, but not for good. They separate you, so you will zeal them. Now, we would never talk that way. But that's actually the sort of a little bit more like wooden translation of the Greek that's underneath this. This whole, they make much of you because they want you to make much of them has at its heart this idea of they are pretending to be zealous for you. Our shared enemy 
is doing what they can to kind of win you over to them and in the process separate me from you so that you can then be zealous for them. If you're not sort of feeling some of the metaphor, think of a guy who's attracted to another man's wife and is trying to get in and say some bad things about him, listen to her, maybe invite her out, just, you know, meet her around the mailbox for a while. Because why? He wants to separate her from him so, and make much of her so that she can make much of him. Or if that's a little bit too kind of, you know, potent analogy for you, think of the Incredibles and Syndrome. Remember that movie? The end of that, whenever Syndrome has been defeated, his whole machine has come down. What's his next tactic? I'm going for Jack-Jack. Do, do we have that, Isaac? There. You remember that now, right? He's got his zero-point energy. The Incredibles are running in to get their baby, and what does he do? He paralyzes them and says, well, that didn't work out. I'm going to take this one, and I'm going to raise this one for myself. If Paul was making a meme out of this, he'd be like, the enemies, that's syndrome, the Galatian church, that's Jack-Jack. And Paul, he's like the zero-point energy guy, right? He's, he's elastic. All right? So I'm not sure which of those metaphors works for you better. <laughs> but that's what's going on. They want to zeal you and separate us. But that's your enemy, guys. And I will say, there is a force of syndrome-like, strategic, satanic devilry going on in our world today through a variety of forces that are trying to say to parents, to kids, don't worry, we'll raise them. That are trying to say about the church to Jesus, no, don't worry, we got them. You stay over there. You in the corner, paralyzed over there. We're going to do our work. We'll zeal them so they'll zeal us. And what are we going to do to you? We're going to separate you out. Paul's coming and saying, guys, we were friends. You and me, like I was with you. You were plucking eyeballs out for me if you could have. That blessedness is being threatened because not only do we have this shared history, we have this shared enemy. And that's what they're trying to do to you. They're trying to zeal you. Now he says later, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Like your zeal can be a good thing. And not only when I'm present you with my little children, but for whom I'm, again, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I mean, I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. For I'm perplexed about you. You guys feel a different Paul at this point? Not the astonished Paul, but the, 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 the heart of Paul for those that he senses are under attack by their shared enemy that are being separated from him so that they would start actually transferring all their allegiance and their affections from Paul and ultimately from Jesus. Because what Paul says about these guys is they want your heart for them. Now, again, back to the Corinthians, here's the way Paul thinks of that same energy. He says it this way, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Same word, made much of, zealous. 
That's what's going on here. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you to Christ. So Paul's saying is, to using John's, John the Baptist's metaphor, I'm like the bridegroom's buddy. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the best man. And my job is to help the bride get to the groom. That's, that's the joy, but she's got to trust me in the process a little bit if I'm going to be able to protect her and get her there, kind of first century language when brides could be stolen kind of in the midst of a week-long celebration, right? The best man had a really important job. Protect the bride so that when the bridegroom arrives, his bride's safe. Paul's like, yeah, that, that's, that's me to you, guys. But there is an enemy out there. And now you got to get out of the syndrome thing and back into my first analogy, right? There's a guy who wants her. And they're trying to get her to be zealous for him. And I'm just saying, I, I feel jealous for you guys. He's saying that to the Corinthians in their dangers. He's saying the same thing to the Galatians in theirs. This whole thing about the law, guys, you got to think of it in terms of faithfulness to Jesus. And I'm telling you, I, I feel jealous for you. I feel zealous for you. I feel afraid for you because something else is going on. And this is, this is an enemy. This is a villainous, traitorous enemy that you have embraced and welcomed into your churches. I hope you can feel this the way I'm saying. And ultimately, that kind of moves us into his third point, right? It's not just that they have a shared enemy. It's that they've got this shared sincerity together. So that Paul at the end could be saying uh, to them, like he's saying to the Corinthians, I, I zeal you for him. I care so deeply about you, but not so that you think I'm a great speaker, I'm a great guy, or I'm, no, no, I'm just, I'm just out of the way. I'm just the one, I'm just the holding space for you to get where you need to go. I feel zealous for you, jealous for you, for him. Now, do you feel a different Paul just in reading those verses together? I do. That was part of why I wanted to separate this little section out so we could deal with it as a unit and just feel this sense of where Paul's kind of saying, it's, it's kind of like that moment in the movie where people kind of like fade back and think about something that happened in the past. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's still making his didactic point. He's still presenting a problem for them. And he's letting them know how serious it is. But he's, he's drifting back. He's having a flashback to their shared history so that they can be more afraid of their shared enemy because they, they care about each other. Now, if, if, if we just paused here, all right, and I don't know which of you, which guardrail we're running up against right now, but I'm telling you, this guardrail strongly exists, and it's got to keep us on the road. If we're going to follow Paul as he follows Jesus, and we're going to stay on this road of being a faithful witness, we can't just hug this guardrail all the time and be like, ah! That's all right, we're just gonna you know, take people down. Like, there's gotta be this sense of shared relationship and, and warmth, compassion, concern, so, so that some hard things can be said. And here are the hard things. All right, so that was our first mini sermon. Here's the second. Here are three things that Paul says right at the beginning. He reminds them of their condition apart from God. Let's go all the way back to verse 8. 
Their condition, apart from God, to use his language, is that formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. To use Paul's language from Ephesians, he says it this way. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. When he's talking to the Thessalonians, he says it this way. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Did you abstain from sexual immorality? That each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. Not period, but in contrast, if that's the way the people of God are going to act sexually, if that's their new ethic of behavior, well then it's not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who, what does he say? Do not know God. So if we're balancing this, Paul's telling people he desperately loves. You have to remember how you came to God. You came to God not as the desirable ones, not as the ones who were friends of God. You came as those enslaved, separated, alienated, estranged, hopeless, without God. This is, this is Vizzini talking to Fezzik. Did I find you? You were unemployed in Greenland. This is their status, or if we were going to sort of enter into the text, don't enter in as Paul. The Gentiles populate this church today. We don't live in Israel. We don't trace our ancestry back to Abram and Jacob. We're the Gentiles, guys. And though God has worked the gospel into the culture of our church, into the culture of a lot of our families, that is a fading influence, to be sure. And we are surrounded by folks our brothers and sisters, in some cases literally, our fellow countrymen, and this is their condition. How are we going to say to folks that we love, that we see at the store, that we meet in the school, or whose kids are on the same teams as ours, how are we going to say to them and share to them truth if we don't know them? Point one. But once you know them, is that enough it is not. Or else the book of Galatians would have been Paul just saying, hey guys, I'm going to come. Just remember all our good times together. Love, Paul. No, there is a, a truth to share and the truth that we need to be able to share is the condition that exists when we are apart from God. But in Galatians 4, we also read this. In the same way, we also... When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem. Or to complete the passage from Ephesians where he called them separated and alien, strangers, hopeless, and godless. He also says, but now you who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Paul doesn't just give bad news, but the good news makes no sense without the bad news, right? So there is, among those who love those that are in their world, among us who love the others that are in our world, there is an obligation, if we're going to follow Paul as well, 
help people understand their condition apart from God. The second thing that we get to let them know is what it means to come to God. Paul says it this way, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, or as Paul would say to the Corinthians, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So what Paul's doing to the Corinthians, the same thing he's doing to the Galatians here. Paul, in writing this out, could have like stopped his thought before he put pen to paper, right? It's not as though what we're getting in chapter 4, verse 9, is Paul's editing process, where like if Paul had, you know, the delete button on his computer, he would have been like, that's not the way I want to say it. Oh, gosh, cut and paste. I'm, I'm done with that. Now, this is Paul letting them see a deliberate edit, because it's the same edit that has to happen in our minds all the time. We're much like those two children in Narnia who, having arrived in the land of Aslan the king, are trying to tell the story and say, we were calling out, we were calling out, we were calling out. And Aslan arrives and he goes, oh, my children, you never would have called had I not called you first. That moment that C.S. Lewis penned is more described autobiographically by him when he says it this way. You much picture me alone in my room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. If you're wondering, C.S. Lewis was a devout atheist before coming to Christ. And describing that, he continues and says, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal son who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words, can't quite pronounce this quite uh, accurately, compele intrare, compel them to come in, have been so abused, wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Now those are C.S. Lewis's words before or after his conversion. You know, that also reveals is all of C.S. Lewis's words then before his conversion. And that might be the family member you're going to approach on Thanksgiving or at Christmas. 
That might be the neighbor with whom you have a conversation about issue one. Someone whose life and whose painful life, perhaps, has left them very hard, very hard to talk to. Very much as Lewis described someone who is kicking and screaming with darting their eyes in every direction, but for a chance to escape, and yet who is, in the moment of your conversation, still being called by God. So that Paul, when talking to the Galatians, I don't know what his initial conversations were like, but at some point they called out. And yet before that, Paul could say, you who have come to know God, or rather, have come to be known by God. Paul wants to accent the fact for them, and I think for us, potentially as reluctant evangelists, like Mike, entering into Tuesday night, not quite sure of exactly how he's going to share the gospel, and maybe a little afraid to be thought of as backward or, or dumb. With our eyes darting around for chances of escape, God's narrowed us in on someone, and if we find them to be hard, guess what? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. So we want to be able to share with others, one, their condition apart from God, two, the account of how they come to God, and then lastly, the insanity of turning away from God. Listen to the way that Paul says it in verse 9 as well. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You hear this then in the middle of the broad language that Paul's been using. The argument and appeal that coming to God has to be done on terms of grace and not on terms of our effort. On terms of acknowledging our inability to obey the law, not in our track record of having tried to obey the law. That's the only way to come to God is on his merits and not on our own. That's the broad argument. But in the middle of it, with their relationship front and center, He's telling them, you know what it was like to be separated from God? You even know how you got to God in the first place? All of his previous work to get you so that you would call his prior love for you so that you would love him? Him knowing you so that you would know him? Why would you want to turn back? Why would, to use Ryan's word last week, if you're unshackled from all the weight, why would you load up your backpack again? What? is going on. His point is, this is insane. Because there is one path to salvation and I can just make it known to you. And when Paul does it, all he's doing is using prophetic language over and over and over again. Listen to these words from Amos as we close. Come to Bethel and transgress one of the high places where they used to worship not god but but foreign gods come to gilgal the other place and multiply transgressions bring your sacrifices every morning your tithes every three days for so you love to do O people of israel declares the lord what what he's doing is saying hey israel 
You're a bunch of idol-worshiping pagans. You're no different from your neighbors. You love doing this. You've set up a high place in two different locations, and you're bringing all your tithes and all your offerings to them. Just keep doing that. It's going to work out great for you. It's a little sarcasm I think we should read into the first part of this prophetic appeal. But then God goes on and tells them over and over how he brought dismay and difficulty into their lives for one purpose only. It's the same heart that we heard in the passage read to us from Psalm 107. All those in these different locations of life cried out to God. They cried out to God. They cried out to God. What is Israel doing? They're not crying out to God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I withheld rain from you. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it would not rain would wither. Yet, you didn't see it. You did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. You, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. I sent a pestilence on you as in the matter of Egypt, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you were a brand plucked out of the burning, how you were about to burn up and I reached in and I grabbed you back and I was like, return to me. And yet you did not return to me, declares Where's the Lord? What, what do I have to do? This is Amos's words to these people. He's, he's telling them over and over. Can you just look at your history? Just like, look at it. Problem, 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 problem. That was me for one purpose, one burden, one yield. I just, I just wanted you to return back to me. But you didn't. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who makes the morning darkness, who treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And if we tell the, the, the governing forces of, the, of o, the state of Ohio, we want to kill our children that's the God who's going to watch on Tuesday. If we walk down the path of castrating and killing our kids so that we can have more comfortable lives, this is the God who will watch. And I want to warn us, if that's the way we go as a state, I want to warn us, love them anyway. Listen to them anyway. Care about them anyway, because there is pain behind that decision. There is insanity, yes, but there is a painful insanity, a lonely insanity. There is a longing to return to God behind that insanity. And this God will not be mocked. This God will see, and he will want to use you, but not just the astonished you, but the deeply afraid you not just the angry you but the sad you why because he, this is not the last chapter of the book of Amos even Amos continues the next chapter seek the Lord and live 
four times the offer still comes out seek the lord what and you get to live if you come back to him you can live you don't have to die you can live you don't have to suffer you can live and god wants them to live do we or do we just want to win or do we want to invite them into the victory in life of knowing about god because that's what he did for us so that we can join in and hear the words of God to us I will restore the fortunes of my people I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given to them says the Lord your God I don't think I'm just trying to make a point from Paul's little story I'm saying don't shy away from disagreements I don't itch for a fight either. Love hurting people who are doing insane things because that's what God did to you. Here you are. So let's ask him to help us. Hmm? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth of your word and we're eager, Lord, once again to be able to tell you we know you because you knew us we love you because you loved us we're before you and adopted by you friends of yours because you cared about us Lord, we just we want you to do the same thing for the people we love and we know you may ask us to talk about hard things but i pray that we would do it with soft hearts I pray that they would feel the weight of our own sin, the gratitude we have for our salvation, that we could be jealous for them to present them to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we are so far beyond time. That was supposed to be a short sermon, and it wasn't. I mean, it was two sermons.